events of the 20th century within living memory now, at the beginning of the 21st century, two stand out. It is a particular satisfaction to me as an historian born in 1932 that I follow and can remember them both because both were world-changing. Despite the fact that I have followed the 20th century, the accursed century, both of these events were triumphs of the human spirit. The first was our victory in the great just war, World War II, fought from 1939 to 1945. The second, my subject for tonight, was the fall of the Soviet Union and of revolutionary communism in 1991. This world-shaking fall came as a total surprise. Nobody in the world had predicted it. I should know, because the last part of my life was devoted to aiding the destruction of communism, in which I had the honor and the privilege of playing a small part, along with a good friend named Andrew Iva, a Lithuanian born in the United States, which gave him American citizenship, a Greenberry trained at West Point, and a Catholic champion, whom I will feature in next month's lecture. I even formed an association, which we called the Nike Group, dedicated to the victory over communism, which was finally achieved in 1991. To understand how it all happened, you have to appreciate how a one-party state is governed. A one-party state was created by Lenin and Hitler. It is the worst form of government ever devised. I have said it was made in hell. The ruling party, a private association, takes the place of a legitimate government. In the language of Lenin, it plays a leading role in the state. Eventually, the people in rules come to realize that its leading role must be ended. And when that happens, the Communist Party, which never won a fair and free election anywhere, simply disappears. It is also important to know that Russia, back in the time of the Tsars, was a conglomeration of nationalities, which Lenin brought back together in what he called the Union of Soviet, which is the Russian word for councils of workers and soldiers, though the Soviets were never really important except as makers of revolution. As such, they were always dominated by Lenin's Communist Party, which is the only glue holding the Soviet Union together. So without the Communist Party, there was no Soviet Union. And the prime purpose of the Soviet Union was to be a model of revolutionary government, which has spread the communist revolution throughout the world. For a long time, the Soviet government seemed to be doing exactly that. At the worst, the communists ruled no less than one-third of the world. That is why Whitaker Chambers, subject to my lecture in November, thought them certain to win. But Chambers died in 1961, and since he never knew the Catholic Church, he did not know that God himself had promised St. Peter that the gates of hell should never prevail against the church Christ found. As hell's agents, agent Lenin learned that, learned when, uh, as hell's agent Lenin learned when Stroke incapacitated him at the height of his power uh, just after he had begun to make martyrs in both the Orthodox and the Catholic churches, he was no match for God. So the communists failed and fell in 1991. Now they are gone. God was true to his promise to St. Peter. Tonight, I will, Today I will try to show you how and why the communists failed and why the Soviet Union disappeared. In 1982, 
The communists of the Soviet Union held their annual rally to commemorate the communist revolution of 1917. It was its 65th anniversary. The general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which Stalin had made the title of uh, the title of the Soviet leader, was Leonid Brezhnev, 75 years old and a spectacle pitiable to behold. He could hardly catch his breath and required two men to help him up the stairs to the ice-cold reviewing platform. He was, the Russian observer said, a, quote, living corpse, end quote. When the weather forecast for this November day predicted extreme cold, Brezhnev doctors had unanimously and strongly recommended that he not stand exposed on the reviewing platform for the, for the three hours of the ceremony. But his colleagues in the Politburo insisted he must be present. After all, this was the supreme communist occasion of the year, and he was the head of Soviet Russia. So he came. When the parades had ended, Brezhnev staggered from the reviewing platform with death on his face. Three days later, he breathed his last. Once again, as in the horrible deaths of Lenin and Stalin, God had shown us that death can be a last mercy, especially when it comes to a dictator. Once again, he showed, as our ancestors knew, that it can be a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brezhnev's body was prepared for lying in state in the Hall of Columns, where the bodies of Lenin and Stalin <coughs> But when his wooden coffin was lifted to carry it to the Hall of Columns, it proved to be so badly constructed that the body fell through the bottom. A metal coffin was hastily substituted. The substitute coffin was very heavy. Two men could not carry it. The coffin carriers lost their grip on it as it was being lowered into the grave. The metal box holding all that was left of the maximum leader of the Soviet Union for 18 years fell with a re-echoing thud that could be heard by the millions watching on television. The condition of the Soviet Union in 1982 was very like that of Brezhnev's coffin. The economy had stagnated. The growth rate that year was the lowest in the Soviet history. Farm production had grown less than 1% a year during the entire decade of the 1970s, and it was evidently continuing to drop since no statistics about it had been published since 1918. The communists collected farms to establish which Stalin had killed by his own admission to Franklin Roosevelt, 10 million people were a total failure. This was not only because of the low production rate, but because of the enormous wastage Every year, one-fifth of the Soviet grain harvest and one-third of the Soviet potato crop rotted in the ground or in inadequate or mismanaged storage facilities. It was a black joke in the Soviet Union, where everyone worked for the government, that the people pretended to work and the government pretended to pay. The Russian rule had lost all its value. When I visited Moscow in 1988, the government would not even take rubles as its own currency, only dollars, to pay for tours of the Kremlin. Food imports to this nation, which is some of the richest black soil on earth, had multiplied tenfold at a cost of $7 billion in 1980. And in 1981, Ronald Reagan, who all his life had fought communism, became president of the United States and as such ended all food shipments to the Soviet Union which he boldly called the Evil Empire. 
Soviet population growth had dropped to only 0.8% annually. Male life expectancy dropped from 67 years in 1964 to only 62 years, the largest such drop in any developed nation. Infant mortality had risen to 40,000, and 15% of all babies who lived had serious abnormalities. Soviet Russia as a nation was ceasing to exist. It was becoming a land of death. Along with the communist failures, Brezhnev's Russia was full of an ancient evil, corruption. Not only had Brezhnev, his daughter and son-in-law, and numerous relatives and friends in high office acquired enormous personal wealth through official corruption, but also smuggling rings, influence peddling, and office selling were operating in many regions of the Soviet Union, often organized by the party ladies themselves. Once again, Lord Acton's attitude was being proved in the greatest totalitarian state in the world, that power corrupts, and absolutely power <coughs> corrupts absolutely. Brezhnev had prided himself on creating a stable regime with almost total job security for incumbent officers or office holders. He never fired anyone, no matter what he had done. He saw proof of the high quality of his leadership and the triumphs of communism worldwide during his rule. Those triumphs owed almost nothing to Leon and Brezhnev. Their chief architects were Ho Chi Minh, who had defeated the United States of America in Vietnam, the only person ever to do that. And, and Yuri Andropov, head of the KGB, the Soviet secret police, 15 of Brezhnev's 18 years of power, working quietly and efficiently behind the scenes, advised by the century's greatest traitor, British spy and counter-spy, H.A. Kim Philby, who for many years had been living in Moscow and later died there, just as the Soviet Union did. Andropov knew all about the corruption, which had become rampant in the Brezhnev years. His files held more than enough evidence to convict or blackmail a substantial portion of the major office holders of the entire Soviet Union. When he could, Brezhnev uh, had tried to prevent Andropov from using this information. But for the past seven years, he had by no means always been well enough to prevent it. Suicides began as Andropov closed in. During his long tenure at the KGB, Andropov, working silently and steadily for the day when he become general, would become general secretary himself, had gathered about him a cadre of young, younger, ardent young men who shared his determination to shake the Soviet Union out of its lethargy and stagnation, eliminating the per, per, its pervasive corruption. One of those men was Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev from the Stavropol province, Stavropol province in South Russia. In 1980, with Andropov's patronage, Gorbachev became the youngest member of the superannuated Soviet Politburo at the age of 49. Gorbachev had a unique distinction among Politburo members that he never talked about. Unlike them, but like many Russian children, even during the communist years, he had been baptized as an infant by his grandmother. It was one of the most important baptisms in history. Since Christ initiated, baptism has been the holy gateway into his church. But the sacraments have power greater than any power 
Lenin or Stalin ever wielded or imagined, as Gorbachev was to prove in his ethical career as head of the Soviet state, which eliminated and thereby changed the history of the world. How did Gorbachev get to the top of the party? Many party officials feared Andropov, but he moved so swiftly, smoothly, and surely after Brezhnev's death that they had no time to create a politically effective opposition to him. On November 12, 1982, the day Brezhnev's wooden coffin broke open as his body was being brought into the Hall of Columns, the Politburo elected Andropov general secretary. In, within the next two months, he cracked down on unregistered freelance work and the practice of leaving work to shop, necessitated by the fact that almost all shops were open only during working hours, as well as enforcing much more strictly the laws against bringing anti-Soviet literature into the Soviet Union. In December, he moved Viktor Chebrikov, an able former associate, into his <coughs> old post as head of the secret police, the KGB. At the same time, he removed the Interior Minister Nikolai Shelikov, one of Brezhnev's cronies, who had plunged deeply into the widespread official corruption of his old friend's years in power. Andropov pursued Shelikov relentlessly, even after his removal from office, gradually revealing the evidence he had collected against him. During the winter of 1983, Andropov had Shelikov expelled first from the Senate Committee and then from the Communist Party, stripped of his general rank, and finally arrested while his son was sent to a labor camp. Andropov allowed rumors to spread that Shelikov would be sentenced to death for his corruption as an example of the country that it would no longer be tolerated. Yuri Andropov lived for his work and had almost no life apart from it. He paid little attention to where he dwelt and disdained this kind of large and constant guard that Stalin had kept around him. Even in his old apartment building on Kutuzov Prospect in Moscow, the Shelikov family lived in an apartment in the same building, late in March 1983, with her son in the gulag and her husband slipping into a depression that was to end in suicide. Mrs. Shelikov made her move against the communist monster, her neighbor. It was a superlatively brave act for which she had more than ample reason. It may have changed the course of history. Almost nobody knows about it today or honors her part. She took her husband's pistol and confronted Andropov one evening on the stairway of their apartment building, firing several <coughs> shots. She never used a firearm before, and only one of the shots, her shots struck the maximum leader, but it struck him on, in the side near his diseased and vulnerable kidneys. Andropov seemed to recover from his wound, but whether or not because of Mrs. Shelikov's bullet, his health began to deteriorate. When Finnish President Mano Kovista, Kovisto paid a state visit to the Kremlin in June 1983, a Finnish photographer took a revealing picture uh, showing Andropov as, quote, a frail and wooden figure, puffy face with his hands hanging at his side, his face hidden by dark glasses and a pork pie cap. Two buffy aides assisted him down the steps as Andrei Gromyko of the Politburo and Leonid Zamyantin, head of the, private, of the party's international, 
International Information Department watched anxiously. Yuri Andropov was on the same road that Leonid Brezhnev had followed to oblivion. The sense of a vigorous drive against national stagnation, which Andropov had conveyed since he took over, was already vanishing in the Soviet Union. Three months after he became general secretary, Andropov's kidneys failed completely. He now had to go on his kidney dialysis machine twice a week each session of which exhausted him for two days. He would evidently welcome and perhaps hasten the death of his predecessor, Brezhnev, now faced the grim reaper himself. His mind was strong, active, and clear, his ambition unsafe, his life works frustrated just as he seemed to have reached his long-sought goal. Though far from the swing, polyglot, modish intellectual, foolish Western media reports made him out to be. Yuri Andropov was a reflective man who wrote poetry. In his last weeks, he wrote a poem on his own death, giving us a grim, grim and shattered glimpse of the ultimate void that awaits all who live by dialectical materialism and destroying spirit of revelation, a void into which communism inevitably leads. It was a kind of swan song for the Soviet Union. Oh, yes, we are mortal, even though I do not accept this truth, the most frightening of all. At the appointed hour, I will die, as everyone must, and the memory of me will be erased by the kingdom of the dead. We are transients in this world under the moon. Life is but a blank. Non-existence is eternal. End quote. Who now remembers Yuri Andropov? He died in February 1984. Nobody expected him to die so quickly. The Politburo was not ready for another succession. There were two heirs apparent, the two youngest members of the Politburo, Gorbachev, whom Andropov placed there, and Grigory Romanov, harsh, overbearing, and generally disliked, who had been advanced by Mikhail Suslov, a doctrinaire communist who went back to Stalin for inspiration. Romanov was junior on the Politburo to Gorbachev. Gorbachev had only the small provincial base of the Stavropol region, while Romanov had long been the party boss of the great city of Leningrad, the former capital of, the Saint, of Russia, at, at St. Petersburg. The two Benendez deadlock, neither could secure a clear majority. So the Politburo opted for a caretaker regime under Konstantin <coughs> Chernenko, 73 years old and dying of emphysema he had chain-smoked cigarettes from the age of nine. Someone said of him devastatingly, referring to the personality cult which Stalin had created in Khrushchev and in Downs, you can't have a personality cult without a personality. <laughs> Chernenko's 13 months of rule, February 1984 to March 1985, brought a train of humiliation. <coughs> he was so short of breath he could not give a clearly audible speech. He had no policy or objective but to stay alive and cling to the appearance of power. Everyone simply waited for him to die, which he did in the winter of 1985. The Soviet Union lay in the valley of the shadow of death. Their leaders had learned at last that all men are mortal. Death and mortality are God's answer to human evil. 
which is why God told Adam and Eve that their sin had led death into the world. The greatest tyrants in history, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong, were removed from power only by death. Nearly everyone who has studied the history of Russia has remarked upon the Russian people's amazing capacity for suffering. It had been tested to the full in the 77 years of communist rule. But now the long ordeal was at last approaching its end. The fall of the Soviet Union was imminent. The long agony was nearly over. In December 1984, Gorbachev first used the Russian term perestroika, which he used to make world famous, to describe the... <coughs> transformation of the Soviet government and economy he saw and declared that, quote, glasnost, which means openness in contrast to pervasive official secrecy, is an integral part of socialist democracy, <coughs> which most certainly it never had been. As Chernenko lay on his deathbed in the winter of 1985, it was still not clear who would succeed him. Chernenko's choice for his successor was Viktor Grishin, head of the Moscow Party organization since 1987, steeped in corruption and therefore clearly unqualified for the highest office. The justice clearly a product of the Brezhnev style of communist rule, which he could, he could be counted on not to change. Romanov was not supporting Grishin. The other contender was again Gorbachev who continued to talk about perestroika and glasnost. The military was no longer a factor in making the choice. Marshal Ovarkov had been mysteriously demoted in September. Marshal Ustinov, the defense minister and a member of the Politburo, had died in December. Another communist had walked in the valley of the shadow of death. There are apparently reliable reports that secret police chief Chebrikov provided evidence of Grishin's corruption to the Politburo meeting to choose a successor to Chernenko. In the end, the decision fell to ageless, inscrutable Andrei Gromyko, 76, whom Stalin had appointed, and who once said, my personality does not interest me. Gromyko said of Gorbachev looking for the qualities Stalin had sought, he has a nice smile but iron teeth. He picked Gorbachev. And the Polybio confirmed it unanimously. Mikhail Gorbachev was only 53 years old, a member of Christ Church by virtue of his baptism. The geriatric parade in the Kremlin was over. The strong and vigorous leader had arrived, the last one the Soviet Union was to have. Early in his rule, Gorbachev announced that the Soviet Union would no longer try to make revolutions in the rest of the world, which had been Lenin's purpose in making the communist revolution. Gorbachev explicitly abandoned that apocalyptic goal. Such a sequence of events no man could have predicted. It was God's answer to all the prayers uh, that, of the victims of communism down through the years, and the dying cry of the martyrs to communism. God does hear our prayers. He is outside time, but knows it, because he created it and sustains it. I can tell you, having lived, lived through those years, we always wondered how God would eventually destroy 
the Soviet Union, the communism, and this is how we did it. And 1988 was the thousandth anniversary of the conversion of Russia to Christ. A thousand years in thy sight, uh, but, uh, like a watch in the night of yesterday when it is past. And Gorbachev's baptism made him a member of Christ's church, washed in the blood of the Lamb of God. Some of the people of Russia were already longing for the return of Christianity, which for the communists, which the communists never really expunged for all their efforts to do so. In 1988, my wife and I visited Russia, and we will never forget the tour guide in the Kremlin who took us through one of the old closed cathedrals and said earnestly, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have services here again? On April 29, 1988, Gorbachev met with the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church, which no previous general secretary had ever recognized and which Lenin thought he had destroyed. Gorbachev, at this meeting, acknowledged the role of Christianity in Russian history and pledged a new law uh, on freedom of conscience that should, quote, take account of believers' concerns, end quote. But Gorbachev was surrounded by God's enemies, who would not, God's enemies and his, who would not give up their power without a fight. A strapping Siberian named Boris Yeltsin now appeared on the scene. He publicly resigned from the Communist Party July 12, 1990. He called it perceptibly, quote, liberation from a false religion. But Gorbachev, Gorbachev still clung to communism. On the 67th anniversary of Lenin's death, he placed a wreath on the Lenin's tomb. One of the most amazing facts about the fall of communism was that Gorbachev, so far as we can tell, remained a communist to the very end. But his baptism by his grandmother made Gorbachev a Christian, though he did not know it. <coughs> Yeltsin, no longer a communist, now ran for president of the Russian Republic and won on June 12, 1991, with 57% of the vote. Gorbachev could not stop him. At his victory press conference, Yeltsin demanded independence for the so from the Soviet Union for the Russian Republic, striking down once and for all Lenin's monstrous creation, the Union of Socialist Soviet Socialist Republics. But the true victor was hailed on Easter, uh, the April year 1991, when a long-bearded Russian monk from the Zagorsk Monastery, spiritual heir to the thousands, to thousands who had kept the faith of the Russian Church all through the dark night of communism, carried a life-size crucifix seven feet tall, stood before Lenin's tomb, facing the dead body of the ultimate revolutionary and his living heirs, and cried out in a voice of thunder, Mikhail Sergeyevich, he is risen! So the fall of the Soviet Union was one more triumph of the cross. In explaining that fall, we must give, give credit to three people besides Gorbachev. First, the leaders of the United States and Great Britain, President Ronald Reagan and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, firm anti-communists throughout their public life, Reagan, supported by Thatcher, 
pursued several policies which seriously weakened the Soviet economy and forced Gorbachev to make the changes which eventually led to communism's downfall. First, Reagan refused to sell U.S. technology to the Soviets. He'd been doing it. He stopped it. A free society produce, produces technological advantages, advances. A slave state does not. The Soviet Union had been purchasing computers, the U.S. computer technology, but now that was no longer available to them. Second, Reagan persuaded the Arab oil-producing nations to lower the prices of oil so that on the world market. Thus, the Soviet Union, which depended on oil sales uh, for the hard currency it needed to, to shore up its economy and to lower its own price and suffer the economic consequences. Third, Reagan supported the, uh, the anti-communist freedom fighters throughout the world, which especially <coughs> in Afghanistan. The Afghan war specifically uh, was a great economic drain on the USSR and the communists and the communist eventual surrender and withdrawal was devastating to their morale. Fourth, Reagan insisted on building up the US military rather than agreeing to arms reduction as Gorbachev hoped. Thus Gorbachev had to spend uh, had to spend more money to keep up. All of these policies destroyed the Soviet economy. So Gorbachev had to agree to reforms. Once he agreed to a few, the changes became unstoppable. Re-elections were demanded in the various Soviet republics, and Gorbachev had to allow them. He also had to let the communist satellite nations of Eastern Europe go further. The third person who played a key role in the downfall of communism was Pope John Paul the Great, who transformed the world during his pontificate one of the greatest since St. Peter, in which he emphasized the rights of the person as the basis of all morality. The Pope had learned to fight communism as a bishop in communist-ruled Poland, and it helped lead it to freedom, supporting the first labor union in the history of communist states, Poland's magnificent solidarity. When solidarity began to undermine the communist rule in Poland, Gorbachev rejected all advice to send troops and tanks to Poland. Returning to his homeland shortly after he became Pope, John Paul the Great guided it and Catholic, it and Catholic Lithuania out of the devil's jaws, being in the splendid words of George Weigel, quote, a witness to hope. I consider Weigel's book with that title, published in 1999, one of the best of the cursed 20th century, fully a match for Whitaker Chambers' witness described in the previous lecture. I am glad and proud that the last course I taught here uh, was on the pontificate of John Paul III. In conclusion, I should mention that the, la the last attempt of the communist old guard to remove Gorbachev was destroying all they had built. The attempted coup was led by the then head of the KGB, Vladimir Kriyachkov. It was August when Gorbachev was taking his annual vacation in the Crimea. The coup maker's <coughs> first plan was to say that Gorbachev was relinquishing the leadership 
of the Soviet Union because he was ill. So Aung Gorbachev got wind of their plan, and on August 18th, he telephoned his friend Arkady Volsky to tell him, I am not ill. Do you understand? I am not ill. Orient yourself, but I'm not ill. The coolies claimed the following day, August 19th, that Gorbachev had to resign because he was ill. Kuyushkov and Defense Minister Marshal Yazov confronted the weak vice president of the Soviet Union, Kennedy Yanayev, with a demand that he sign a statement confirming this and proclaiming a state of emergency. Yanayev signed even though he knew the statement was false. At 6 o'clock that evening, Radio Moscow announced the coup. Boris Yeltsin, now the freely elected president of Russia, heard the announcement. The strapping white side, white-haired Siberian knew that his time had come. He was no longer a communist and now had it in his power to destroy everything Lenin had built. He put on a bulletproof vest and headed for Moscow with a convoy of cars. Outside the village of Archangelskoy, 18 miles from Moscow, the three officers commanding the Alpha Force unit, the coolmakers had sent to arrest Yeltsin, had been arguing for hours on whether to obey their orders or not. Two of them did not want to arrest Yeltsin, while the third was willing to do it. Finally, they compromised. When the presidential car arrived with Yeltsin in it, it would shoot out its tires. But when the car appeared and the officers ordered the, their men to shoot at its tires, they would not fire. Less than 15 minutes later, an armored unit appeared in Archangel Skoy, ready and willing to arrest all the officials in the Russian government who were there. But they had left just in time to avoid it. So the fall of the Soviet Union depended on those few minutes at the village. In Len as Lenin's gigantic structure of evil, which Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of his greatest victims, they call inhumanly strong, began to talk. The prayers of millions <coughs> who had suffered under, under pushed it over. It was time for courage in Boris Yeltsin's finest hour. His name is almost forgotten now, but remember his words as the hour of destiny struck. The tank from the town division had rolled uh, to, up to the door of presidential residence. Yeltsin climbed up into the turret of the tank and faced the tank commander, Colonel Thessalvian, asking him boldly, have you come to kill me? Thessalvian mumbled in denial. Yeltsin began to speak from the turret of the tank. As Lenin had spoken from the turret of the tank at the Finland station in St. Petersburg as the Bolshevik Revolution began, saying, quote, soldiers, officers, and generals, at this difficult hour of decision, remember that you have taken an oath to your people and that your weapons cannot be turned against the people. You can erect a throne of bayonets, but you cannot sit on it for long. The days of the conspirators are numbered. The clouds of terror and dictatorship are gathering over the whole country. They must not be allowed to bring eternal light. Our long-suffering people will find freedom once again, and for good. Soldiers, at this tragic hour, I believe uh, you will make the right decision. The honor of Russian arms 
will not be covered with the blood of the people. General Konstantin Kobets, chairman of the Russian Parliamentary Commission for Military and Security Affairs and a close ally of Yeltsin, was present and boldly declared, quote, I am the, de the defense minister of Russia, and not a hand will be raised against the people and, its duly elected and the duly elected president of Russia, end quote. The crews of 10 tanks of the Taman Division which had then, been, had then had them trained on the president's, had their guns trained on the president's residence, turned them around and joined in the defense. <coughs> Western newsmen filmed the entire surpassingly dramatic sequence and broadcasted around the world. Boris Yeltsin had proved again one brave man standing alone can change the course of history. A fistfight broke out in the composing room of the official communist newspaper Izvestia when editor Nikolai Yefremov said that Yeltsin's appeal to the troops, which many people had seen on television, would not be printed. When Yefremov tore out the type in which the appeal had already been printed, the printers told him they would destroy the presses if he did not restore it, and he did. Thousands of people began to gather around the president's residence, called the White House. A retired lieutenant and Afghan war veteran named Baskatov, who said he regarded it as his duty as a Christian citizen to defend the elected government and resist the coup, took command of these, uh, these heroic Russian civilians inspired by Yeltsin's heroism. In Washington, President Bush, following events rather than leading them, but at least paying attention, issued a strong statement supporting Yeltsin and demanding evidence that Gorbachev was in fact ill. Flying into St. Petersburg that afternoon, recently elected Mayor Anatoly Sobchak, mayor of St. Petersburg, uh, went directly to the headquarters of General Samsonov, commanding the military district, including the capital city. With him was Boris Gidaspov, head of the Communist Party of St. Petersburg, whose word had been law in, in theory, in law in the city in the days of communist rule. Mayor's subject stuck out his jaw and declared, defied both uh, the general and the party leaders. He, quote, told them that in the eyes of the law they were conspirators, and that if they lifted a finger, uh, they would be facing a Nuremberg of their own, end quote. When Guinness Roth tried to protest, the mayor bellowed in his face, shut up! Don't you realize that by your present here you are liquidating your own party? So the <coughs> rule of law returned to the Soviet, to Soviet Russia as the Almighty Party faded away. But the coup makers were not finished. At 2.30 p.m. that day, General Agiev, First Deputy Chairman of the KGB met with Generals Varenikov and Karpovich to plan an assault on the White House, President President, by their Alpha Force, blasting through the, its doors with grenades while tanks fired stun shells and helicopter gunships provided their escort. Yeltsin was to be arrested and killed. The hour for this assault was set at 1 o'clock in the morning of August 21st. At 2 o'clock in the morning came the crisis. 
three helicopters approached, prepared to land troops uh, from the 103rd KGB Division on the unprotected roof of the White House. The helicopters required a dry roof to land on. Some rain had already fallen that night, and Father Gleb Yakunin, survivor of the death, uh, death camps and devotee of Fatima, who was also on the roof of the White House that night, prayed for more. A downpour of rain came. One more prayer from the heart of the empire of evil had been heard. The KGB helicopters could not land on the unprotected roof of the White House. The Lord of storm and rain at last sent down his rain upon the just in Russia. The evil empire was dead, and so was the Soviet Union. So it was the Union of Soviet Soviet.